Good afternoon and welcome to this edition of the Richard Urban Show. I'm your host, Richard Urban, coming to you from historic Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. We present news and views from God's point of view. This afternoon, we're very happy to have Roy Ramey on. He's a Republican candidate for Commissioner of Agriculture here in West Virginia. So please introduce yourself. Well, hello. My name is Roy Ramey, and I'm a small uh, regenerative farmer in Cabell County, West Virginia, uh, just outside of Huntington. And uh, I, uh, we do uh, pastured poultry, pastured pork, and pastured eggs, as well as a few other odds and ends, but those are the mainstay. And uh, we also do some workshops and training events uh, and help out uh, other folks to learn this style of farming. Uh, I'm also a 31-year veteran in the Army. I'm currently a lieutenant colonel in the Army Reserves, still serving, and uh, I guess I'll uh, keep serving until they kick me out. And uh, I'm also a proud uh, husband and father. I have an 11-year-old daughter whom we homeschool, and uh, I stay pretty active in my community, uh, helping out with different uh, other civic events and uh, fraternal organizations and so forth that I'm a part of. Well, that's great. So how did you come to decide to run for Commission of Agriculture? And what are your three main platform points? What are your main points that you're uh, running on? So uh, I have been practicing uh, regenerative agriculture for several years now. I learned uh, this style from Joel Saladin uh, of Polyface Farm. He's actually closer to you all. You may have heard of him. He's the most famous farmer in the world. And I started learning those methods and finding out uh, how difficult it is uh, actually with the, uh, the regulatory environment that we have. And, uh, and I got over a lot of it. Uh, I left and uh, went on an active duty tour with the Army Reserves for a few years and, uh, and came back. And, uh, and as I was trying to get my farm reestablished and, and fully operational again, I started realizing there was some new regulations in there that uh, the Department of Agriculture was proudly pushing. And, uh, and I thought, man, this is undoable. Uh, and it makes it an extreme burden uh, that's just not financially feasible to small farmers. And, uh, and the more I got to looking into it, I thought, you know, the, the guy that's standing in the way on a lot of this or not defending us is the commissioner of agriculture. And, uh, and I need to, to, I was gonna get into the legislature uh, and try to change some of the laws. And I thought, no, the, the bureaucrats are the ones that are causing a lot of this problem. So I need to go there and not be the door, but open the door. And, uh, and that really got me into this mission and deciding to, uh, to help cut some of this regulatory burden and uh, make it easier for small family farms. You know, in West Virginia, we don't have very many industrial farms, uh, yet the regulations uh, that are put in place at the federal and state level are geared not toward our safety, as we're often lied to, but they're actually there to protect the industrial farming system mm. as opposed to the small family farms. And so there's a difference between what a lot of people will tell you with, uh, you know, they, everybody says they, they're for the small farm and, you know, nobody's going to say I'm against small farms. Uh, but what they really mean, most of the bureaucrats talk about small farms. They're talking about industrial farms on a small scale. I'm actually talking about small farms producing food. Uh, for their local communities. Right. What's the difference between a regenerative farm and, say, an organic farm? Or is it, the, is it similar or the same? 
So there's some similarities, and I'm glad you asked that. Uh, you know, a lot of people hear organic, and they just think this uh, this nice idyllic farm, uh, but there's a lot of vagaries in the organic label. It's actually controlled by the U.S. Department of Agriculture as a franchise, and there's a lot of problems with it, despite what people think. And uh, you can do a lot of uh, not so great things in producing food uh, and get away with it and still put the certified organic label on it. Uh, the, the big difference is uh, in regenerative farming, it's about rebuilding the soil and rebuilding the environment. Uh, we pasture our animals and we move them around the pasture and they're, uh, uh, we never shovel manure because we let the animals do that and we make sure that it gets spread around to all the fields that we're actually using and, uh, and help rebuild that soil. Uh, I, my big mentor, Joel Saladin, talks about his farm uh, over 50 years ago uh, where it had uh, highly eroded soils and through the regenerative practices, they've actually built back a lot of the soils that they had so depleted there. And, uh, it's, it's a pretty proud thing to have. Is that any relation to no-till farming or is that more a big commercial thing? Uh, so no-till farming is a specific technique within it and that does help the soil. Uh, no-till just basically means we're not putting a plow in the ground and disrupting the soil. It doesn't necessarily mean you're putting nutrients back in the soil. So with sustainable and, and the no-till is a technique in sustainable, that just means that we're not going to destroy it any more than we've already destroyed it in theory. With regenerative practices, we not only don't want to destroy it, we want to rebuild it to its former uh, former glory, so to speak, because, you know, we got more people uh, on this planet every day, and that population is just growing, which means we need more quality food. We can't use the practices that we've used for the last 50 years and produce the, the quality and the volume of food that we need for the population which means we need better quality soil, cleaner water, cleaner air, uh, in order to sustain our population that's just growing. Regenerative okay. actually does that. Okay. So you mentioned about regulations that as you were setting up your farm again or restarting it, you mentioned excessive regulation. So what's happening? Like, are these state or federal or both? And what can we do? Like, what would be an example? And why are these there? Why were they put in place in the first place if there are too many? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'll start with saying they're both uh, federal and state level regulations. Uh, some of them work hand in hand and some of them are in competition, uh, but they're all uh, meant to favor the industrial agriculture system. Uh, now, those got put into place in part for good reason. A long time ago, we had uh, folks in the food production system, uh, you know, way back to, I believe it was 1903 or so with Upton Sinclair, who exposed the uh, hazardous uh, meat conditions in meat plants. And so, uh, EFSIS was born at the federal level to regulate meat production. And, and so, some of that stuff was needed. Uh, the problem is, we went in an over-regulatory mode uh, in order to protect the industrial farmers instead of truly promote safety. Uh, and I could spend hours going into why that is, but 
but it doesn't protect your safety. It just says that you have to do things in an industrial manner that is profitable for the industrial system, but not for the little small farmer. The, uh, uh, the way that we get over some of those is to, uh, number one, your commissioner is your defender of your agriculture freedom in the state and your choice of foods in the state. And they can either uh, stand up for the big bureaucracy or they can stand up for the people. And what I see is with their actions, they're standing up for the bureaucracy and for the industrial system. The, uh, the regulations that come down at the federal level, uh, such as uh, Food Safety Modernization Act, it's got a wonderful name that sounds like it's given to safety. Uh, right. But again, it's, uh, it's setting up a standard that, that only the big farms can accommodate and small farms just cannot do that and still uh, still be sustainable in order to make their own profit and stay in existence. The, uh, the commissioner needs to stand up to those. And, you know, we've got 50 commissioners or secretaries around the country and, uh, and they need to stand up to the federal level. Uh, you often hear about this with attorney generals with gun laws, for instance, and, and other laws of that nature, standing up to federal regulations. And the, uh, the Commissioner of Agriculture needs to do that regarding food production as well. And, and I'm the guy that will do that because I care about us as West Virginia and what our people can do and have. Uh, the other thing is uh, at the state level, uh, I've already established a relationship, working relationship with Democrats, Republicans, and independents alike to change some of the laws that we need to have changed in this state that will make it more fair and appropriate for our small farms and food producers. One of my big passions is raw milk. And okay. uh, we hear a lot of contention about raw milk and, uh, and that's a passion of mine. Uh, I think we should be able to have it. And whether you want it or, or don't want it, uh, you know, we can both be right on that. Nobody's gonna twist your arm and force you to go get raw milk or, or take away pasteurized milk. Uh, however, uh, as an individual, by the way, our constitution was meant to protect individual freedoms uh, right. and choices. And therefore, uh, as one of the constitutional officers, I'm gonna protect that freedom and the right to be able to choose raw milk if you want to get it. We just need to create an environment where raw milk is legal to acquire. Right now we have a herd share and a few years ago, I was a part of helping to establish the laws. We were asking for open sales of raw milk and a herd share bill. A uh, few of us were pushing together on that. And the open sales did not pass, but the herd share did. Unfortunately, through the, uh, through the committee process and all, there was uh, a lot of uh, unnecessary pieces put into that, which makes it a undesirable bill for a farmer to end up doing. And, uh, and as a result, you know, we only have a few producers of herd share around the state. And if you want to get into a herd share, number one, you have to agree to get a portion of the milk. Generally, it's one gallon as your portion uh, each week of the year, whether the cow is, or goat is producing or not. And uh, you might have to drive anywhere from an hour to a couple or three hours away. I hear about people driving three hours each week to go get milk, one gallon of milk, that's, because they believe in the value much. of, that's way too much. So now, you know, I'm willing to pay seven or eight dollars for a good wholesome gallon of raw milk. 
I'm not willing to pay $30 for that same gallon, uh, not to mention my time of driving two hours or so to go get it. And just by changing the law, uh, we can allow open sales no different. You know, uh, the herd share is, is allowed, and nobody said that it's unsafe. Well, if it's, unsa if it's safe to get a herd share, should it not be safe to go buy a single gallon yeah. of milk as well? So why are and people? That's the, yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Why are people that's against, what I'm against to, it? So there is a lot of um, uh, fear and doubt in there because of uh, the industrial milk supply. Uh, the uh, dairy lobby is very powerful, and they don't want to have any of their uh, any of their kingdom disrupted. And if you take out just five percent of the sales of industrial milk, then then that significantly impacts them. So it's not really about safety. It's about their sales and, and their kingdom. Now they use safety and fear uh, amongst the population to tell you how dangerous this raw milk is. And I'm not gonna say that there's not risk. You know, we've had uh, uh, folks out there producing raw milk that use unclean, unsanitary methods. And in which case, uh, you should probably avoid those farmers and not get your milk from them. Uh, Weston A. Price Foundation and the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund actually has uh, a set of standards uh, that are standard practices for raw milk production that as a producer, you should adhere to those standards. And it, it discusses the cleanliness, the, uh, uh, the methods that you need to use, uh, refrigeration, and so forth in order to produce a clean, healthy product. And we're not asking again for, uh, uh, for anybody to twist your arm and tell you that you've got to take raw milk over pasteurized milk. We just want to be allowed to have it. Now, uh, I've got a uh, uh, friend and a farmer up the road from me who uh, was producing uh, goat milk, and I just didn't care for uh, the methods they used and the cleanliness standards. Didn't seem up to my standard, whether it was or wasn't. And so I used my conscious decision not to uh, acquire that milk. And I think people just need to understand what they're getting, know their farmer. And, and your nose can tell you, if you look around uh, between your nose and your eyes and see this doesn't look good to me, you probably shouldn't buy it. And if it right. does look good to you, you're probably gonna be okay. And you ask them, hey, do you adhere to these standards? You know, here's a list of standards that I believe you should be adhering to, uh, do you or will you adhere to these to ensure my safety? And if they're willing to do that and assure you of a level of safety, then, uh, then you should be allowed to buy that milk. Uh, ironically, we had a bill that did exactly that this past session, and the, uh, the legislators who sponsored the bill, uh, I won't name names, but, uh, but they didn't do the right thing with it to get the right bill in and it was not able to go through the legislative session. So we've learned our lesson on, uh, on that and are gonna push forward in the next session to do better and get that bill passed. That's good. Some That's other good. things, you asked me what we can do as the commissioner. Uh, you know, a lot of these are just policies within the department. And, uh, and there's a policy right now, you know, cannabis and, and hemp, cannabis is pretty contested. Hemp, I think most people are, are understanding and, and good with. Uh, understand the values of it but with the hemp you can only apply for a permit one month out of the year 
Now, it might be a good idea to plan well in advance of your next growing season, but not everybody does that. And we know that. And, uh, you know, if you miss the November deadline, uh, the previous growing year, then you've got to wait a whole other year before you can even apply for a permit to grow hemp. And, uh, and that's just wrong. You know, if we're supporting farmers, and really that's what this, this bureaucratic monstrosity is, they're here to support the people. And if they're here to support the farmers, then they need to take an application in March. If you decide at the last minute, you know what, I just heard about this. Now I've got the financial means. Uh, things are falling in place and I want to grow hemp this year. Well, you should be able to make that happen without having to say I got to lose a whole year in that. Okay. And I'm yeah, going to make that uh, more user friendly. Yeah, I saw on your site or some of the related things you post about the Prime Act. But so. That sounded like a good idea. Maybe you want to tell the viewers about that and what about yes, you know what that is or why you support it. Yes, sir. It. So the uh, the Prime Act. You know, one of the big problems that we have is is the meat production uh, in the country as a whole, and you're seeing a lot of that now with uh, availability of meat uh, in our supermarkets, uh, where most people go to get their groceries. And the Prime Act uh, is a bill by Congressman Thomas Massey in uh, Kentucky, uh, and he farms regeneratively over there, and a uh, very smart guy, and, uh, and he developed this about five or six years ago, actually, and it keeps getting knocked down, but that bill will allow us to use our custom inspection. We got three levels of inspection, custom, state level, and USDA level, and each of those means a little different something, and custom is when you have your own animal that you take to the slaughterhouse and they're gonna process it for you and you pick it all up and take it home. And you can't sell any of that meat at all. Although presumably it's safe enough because you're allowed to consume it for yourself and your family. You just can't sell it for $1. Uh, the Prime Act would uh, allow states to change their uh, laws to go at the uh, within the state, you would be able to use custom level slaughter guidelines in order to sell meat in your local area or within the state. So it's not about putting it in uh, in the big uh, meat chain market. It's about selling within your community uh, or within your region of the state. And that would tremendously improve farming opportunities for folks. If I knew that I could sell in the, the local grocery store or use the custom slaughter uh, to sell my meat at the farmer's market, uh, that would be tremendous. Right now, I have to use higher levels of inspection in order to sell it at, even at the farmer's market. And it costs me more money. Uh, it takes more in the way of time. They have to actually have an inspector on site uh, for that kill and, uh, and doing testing on the meat. And uh, all it does is help the, uh, those big four industrial meat packing places to not have it. But uh, we could help West Virginians and small farmers here, as well as our consumers. You know, most people want to be able to support local farmers. Right. And they just can't do it with the current regulatory environment. And, uh, and if we would change to add something like the Prime Act and then have an accompanying bill within the state of West Virginia to support that, then we could put our local meat in our grocery stores and our farmers markets and, and even sell directly at retail cuts. That's what the Prime Act is, and 
and I support that for the federal level. And, uh, and I will build a uh, rapport with other states that they're supporting it as well and try to get that national support that Congressman Massey needs to be able to pass that bill in Congress. Okay, that's a good thing. So do you think uh, that, is there any issue of like, I was reading sometimes about GMO crops and versus like non-GMO, like there could be contamination among, I don't know, neighboring farms or things. Is that an issue in West Virginia or in general? Is that something you're concerned about or not? Yes, it is a concern. And, and let me address it in a couple different ways. Specifically what you referred to, we do have some GMO, but because we're not a, a generally uh, industrial level farming community, uh, we don't have a lot of it. We do have some of it. Uh, the big thing is when I want to get feed for my livestock, uh, I can't get a GMO free feed because it's just not available around here. I have to buy it pre-bagged from somewhere else, have it shipped in, at an enormous cost. Yet I've got a feed mill that's 20 miles up the road one way and 35 miles up the road another way that if we just had GMO free material available, then I could get the, you know, the GMO free feed. And I actually have a ton of customers who would want that very thing and they would even pay extra for it. I think when when we change some of our environment uh, to make it a little easier for farming, we'll have more small farms. You know, we're not going to have a thousand acre cornfield out here. We just don't have a lot of the land for that kind of thing across a bunch of the state. But if we have smaller plots, uh, maybe farmers are producing some of their own and, uh, you know, growing their own feed, uh, you know, that'll be a, a big help. The big thing with GMOs, and I've in a lot of discussions and debates about this very thing. It's not necessarily that it's GMO. It's what is that GMO designed to do? You know, we genetically modify a crop in order to do something, uh, to have some kind of resistance. And in most of the cases, the resistance is to spraying toxic poisons on it. It'll kill everything else, but allow this corn or this soybean to grow. And so that's the majority of the GMOs that we see, uh, particularly with plants. We want to be able to spray Roundup on everything else and, uh, and not kill our corn or soybean. And so, number one, it needs to be labeled. Uh, I don't trust it, whether it is or isn't. Uh, that's a debatable thing, and, and we'll argue all day about it. But uh, people should at least be, uh, be able to know that it's in their food products if it's used, and it's right. in nearly everything that we have so i am a big fan of labeling for gmos and uh and let's create the environment for small farmers that are going to use something other than a gmo and uh, and i think it'll help the health of uh, the quality of our food and the health of our bodies and our animals that we're consuming as well yeah i'm not so sure if I, I think i might have missed a piece in there but no i think that was the main thing like what was it an issue in West Virginia and what your opinion about it was? The, well, I was asking about the, I guess the cross-contamination or something that between farms oh, yeah, that yeah. are, yeah, something yeah, like that. Yeah, so one of the things that happens, and it again, it's not so much here, but in bigger agriculture communities, what you have is uh, a lot of farmers will have the GMO seed, 
that they're planting. And then you might have the, the loan holdout uh, nowadays, you know, just about all the industrials use GMOs, but a few folks were not. And so the GMOs will cross contaminate through the pollination process into uh, the guy that's not using a GMO seed. And so he saves his seed, uh, but now it's, uh, it's contaminated, if you will. It's cross-pollinated with the GMO variety, and now he has those GMO markers in his seed that he's trying to maintain a heritage breed and, uh, you know, some semblance of what he believes is a clean product, a quality product, or at least a, a specific strain, and now it's crossed with, uh, uh, with that contamination of GMO from somebody else. The bigger problem with that is a, a few years ago is, uh, you know, companies like Monsanto, which are now under the name Bayer, uh, they were suing these farmers for stealing their seed. And in fact, they didn't steal it. Uh, you know, it was, it was pushed on them and, uh, and they were sending investigators in uh, to take samples in cornfields and soybean fields and would test that at their lab, knowing that it was cross-contaminated, and then uh, uh, show that this guy had GMO in his seed, and then accuse him of stealing their patented seed. So yeah, that was a problem. Um, we don't have that quite so much in West Virginia, just because of the dynamic of more small farm issue. But I do know some folks who are using non-GMO varieties on a small scale, and they're very proud of what they grow. Uh, they're using it for both feed and for uh, cornmeal uh, products, if you will, uh, that they can sell directly. And their heritage breeds, more specific to West Virginia uh, or to Appalachia in general, and they don't want that GMO contamination uh, in their product either. Okay. Well, so probably to bring it more to a conclusion, how would you like contrast with your Opponent, I know you're running against the incumbent, Kent Leonhard, right? So what, what would be the contrast for voters? They have those uh, two choices on the Republican side. So for starters, I am not a professional politician, uh, and he is. Uh, I don't have a lot of big money, and I definitely don't have any industrial money backing me. Uh, the, the little bit of money that I have gotten has either been my own or everyday people in West Virginia or around. I do have some friends out of state that, that are regenerative farmers that uh, are supporting me, want to see this. And uh, uh, I'm not a bureaucrat by any stretch of the imagination. I do believe in the Constitution and protecting it uh, absolutely to the letter. Uh, I've done extensive study of our founding fathers and of their establishment of the Constitution, uh, the history around the founding of the country, and, uh, and I well understand the Constitution and the intent behind it with protecting our individual rights. And, and with my 31 years of military service, I didn't serve to protect the government of this country. I served to protect the people of this country. And, and this service with running for office uh, is just an extension of the service that I've spent 31 years to do. Uh, I'm not about protecting the bureaucratic system. Uh, you've obviously heard me talk about uh, I'm a, I'm not about protecting the industrial giants of this country, uh, and that's not what our state is made up of anyway. I want to see our state thrive, and let's protect the small farmers. Let's protect consumer choice uh, that they can have the products that they want, and uh, uh, 
Uh, and those are some of the major differences. Uh, you know, the allegation of, uh, of safety, there's a lot of ways that we can do things safe with our food system that's not necessarily inherent to protecting the industrial giants. So there's no farmer out there that just says, you know what, I want to ignore these regulations so I can have dirty food that's going to poison my, my uh, uh, consumers. <laughs> that's just not, a, uh, not true. So we can do it. It's just different methods that we do ensure safety. Um, those are some of the major things. Uh, I want to cut our budget, uh, cut the bureaucratic process. And, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, my opponent is promoting is a $40 million bill to, uh, uh, to upgrade his laboratories in the state. I think there's better ways to do that, and certainly not with costing $40 million wow. of Virginia money. And uh, uh, you don't hear too much about that other than a little bit of hype of wanting to have a new lab. We just don't need to do that. We can do a lot of those activities through through private enterprise uh, on the occasions that we do have to need it, and that would actually spur on new business. Another thing that I want to uh, throw out there that, uh, you know, I'm big on education, education of our young people and re-education of folks that are in their middle years that, that have maybe been farming in old methods, uh, in commercial methods that just don't know any other way and let's teach these regenerative practices to them. And you're not gonna learn that at a four-year uh, college, racking up $80,000 in student loans just to learn the industrial system and still come back to the farm and not know how to do farm regeneratively. So we've got about uh, six or so uh, state farms around the state, and I wanna convert those to demonstration farms with the regenerative practices being utilized. Pretty much the same model that Joel Saladin uses on his farm. And then uh, we'll show those pastured methods. We'll show how to rebuild the soil, how to have clean water. Uh, we'll show processing methods. You know, if you, if you want to learn to be a butcher, uh, that's a very honorable trade. And uh, you should be able to come somewhere and learn how to do it. When we've built the, uh, when we've grown the best food possible, you should have a butcher that understands how to treat that, uh, that meat right. Uh, for, you know, giving you the cleanest, uh, cleanest, best piece of meat uh, that you can get, and other forms of processing as well. So we'll have workshops on those demonstration farms and uh, show people those practices, and they won't have to spend fifty to $80,000 in debt to go to college for that. Well, I want to thank you very much for coming on today. I hope people will watch and will make informed choices. And we know you're running on the Republican ticket, and so they can vote on June 9th for Commissioner of Agriculture. It's Richard Irvin, I'm coming to you from Store Carpets Ferry. Thank you for joining us today, and we will see you next time.